Thank you for that, and it's a joy to sing and to be with you today, and I want you to know that I'm doing my part today to contribute to the abbreviated service, so I just wanted to give you a heads up on that ahead of time, just in case you were wondering how little or much this thing would be abbreviated. I am glad that we can be together this morning, uh, but before we dive into Mark chapter 3, let me just pray for us together. Father, we rejoice again in this opportunity to be with you in this gathering. Lord, you've made it clear that when your people gather in an intentional way like this, uh, that your presence is manifest in a unique and special way. Of course, you're everywhere at all times, but you're especially where your people are gathered to accomplish your purposes. And so we rejoice that you are here with us today. We want you to be honored and glorified in this service, honored and glorified in this church, honored and glorified in this world. As we reflect on our world, we specifically think this morning of the country of Haiti as they are reeling from the effects of Hurricane Matthew. Lord, I pray that you would give grace to those who are there to provide uh, relief physically. But I pray that your church that is there on that island will be mobilized in a way to capitalize on the spiritual needs of the people as well. Lord, we just pray that somehow you would use this this tragedy um, as a triumph of your grace. Lord, we pray not only for the country of Haiti, but we even pray for our own country, our own state. We continue to lift up Governor Rick Scott to you. We're grateful for the preparation that he was able to do this week with the people on the eastern side of our state preparing for the hurricane. We're glad that many were spared, but for those who did lose family members, we pray that you would comfort them today and that the gospel would somehow make its way to those people who are hurting. We pray not only for our world and our country our state, but even, Lord, our, our area. Lord, we just ask that you would work through um, other churches in this area, not just ours. In specific, today we lift up First Baptist Church and Pastor Hayes Wicker and ask that you bless the preaching of the word there and that the gospel would go forth clearly. I'm grateful for the many ministries at that church and especially the sports outreach uh, under Mark Bates' leadership. We continue to pray for him. And pray that this ministry would be leveraged well to share the gospel with others. And for those of us who are involved in that at some point through the year, I pray that we would use that time well to speak to the other parents that are involved and share the gospel with them. We pray not only for other churches, but especially Faith Bible Church today. Under these circumstances in which we're meeting, we still want you to do your work in our midst. Uh, We pray that you would work specifically in the lives of our new members. Um, I'm thinking of Ashley Fisher and Viola and Cody Eastman and Hannah and Lindsay and others who will be joining us soon after baptism. Just We rejoice in, in what you're doing in our church, and I pray that we would serve these new members well. I pray that they be mobilized uh, to do gospel work here in our area. We pray for those who are recovering from physical needs. I just think of Rich DeWitt today as he's recovering from his eye surgery. And I pray for Lynette Davenport as she's recovering as well. Help her, give her strength. 
We also lift up our special um, small groups that are meeting tonight, uh, specifically the college group uh, that will be meeting, and the folks in their 20s pray that you would give Phil and Cody special wisdom as they lead this ministry, and that the word would be applied to lives, and that this group would be mobilized for gospel work. And now we pray for these next few moments in which we look into your word. Give us insight into the truth. I pray that the text would be clear and that we would apply it appropriately to our hearts. If there's anyone here that does not know you today or is deceived and they think they know you when they really don't, I pray that the word would do its work and that you would receive the honor and glory in this passage, in this place, here today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark uh, chapter 3, we're continuing our study, and for those of you who are new here, uh, and even for those of you who are here regularly, it'd be good for us to be reminded of what we're typically accomplishing on Sunday mornings in the preaching time. We work through uh, our way, line by line, verse by verse, through the Bible, uh, particularly a book at a time. And that being said, we're at the mercy of the biblical text. You know what I mean by that? Uh, We don't choose necessarily uh, what topics to pick based on what we see in people's lives. Uh, We're at the mercy of whatever the text presents, and then we build the sermon and even the service around that. And it seems to work out pretty well. The church has had a faithful, expositional preaching ministry for well over 10 years now. And sometimes... um, The text informs us. Sometimes maybe we need to hit on particular topics. Uh, But that being said, there are unique times in the life of this church where the desire and the burden of the pastoral leadership especially align with the desire and the burden of the text. Most of the time, the text is correcting our desires. But sometimes things that we feel passionately about and that we feel strongly about already meet in the text. And today is one of those very things. Actually, this happened this week when me and uh, Phil and Andrew were meeting together for our staff meeting. And we were particularly discussing um, a, a book that was written in the 1860s called The Christian Ministry. And it was just a little brief time of training And we came across these lines. Listen to this description of pastoral ministry. He says, Bridges, the pastoral work is the personal application of the pulpit ministry to the proper individualities of our people, looking upon them severally as having a distinct and separate claim upon our attentions and cares and anxiety, urging each of them as far as possible to the concerns of eternity and commending to their hearts a suitable exhibition of the offer of salvation. Basically, what Bridges is communicating there is that there's a very personal element to pastoral work. We certainly want to communicate to the crowd on Sunday, but there is, there's a burden that rests with each of us for you as an individual. That's why membership is so important to us, because we want to know who we're supposed to be shepherding. And that being said, we, we had this desire to do this faithfully, and Bridges was confronting us about this, and one of the things that Bridges did that I thought was so interesting was he said, you, you need to be aware that there are several categories of church members in your church. Now, I want to give you these categories. 
And I want you to think pastorally for a moment, which one do you think is the most concerning for the spiritual leaders at Faith Bible Church? Here they are. The ignorant and the careless. The self-righteous. The false professor or the false convert. The young Christian. The backslider. The unestablished Christian. Or the confirmed and consistent Christian. Now, which one of those stood out to you? Right or wrong, it was interesting, to me at least, that the three of us all noted of primary importance, the most concerning of all those groups of people for us was particularly the false professor. The one who thinks they're a Christian, but they are really not, and What that person needs more than anything else is they need to rightly respond to Jesus. They've never done it before. They've been aware of Him, but they've never appropriately responded to Him. What's the greatest concern of our text today? A right response to Jesus. Making sure that someone actually appropriately responds. There are many responses that we're going to see throughout the book of Mark, but this particular text is clarifying for us what is the correct one It's dealing with the false professor. And let's be very transparent for a moment. I think we all can know the signs of a false professor. It's so hard to note because they seem so good on the outside. But based on my experience with people in the past, let me sketch a little profile of somebody who very well could be someone who's deceived in their understanding of salvation, their response to Jesus. could be a man or a woman that we're most concerned about here would have no problem identifying themselves as a Christian, obviously. And here's the difficult part. See, a lot of times false Christians come from Christian families. They were raised in church or... They could have even been raised in a Christian school or been homeschooled. They can even know a good, bit, good deal about the Bible. A lot of times they do because of that very upbringing. But here's some of the more graphic indicators. I mean, because a lot of, it's just, it, excuse me, it isn't just everyone who is raised in a Christian home and goes to a Christian school as a false professor. Here's, here's some of the, like, telltale signs. A false professor typically projects an air of self-assurance about their relationship with Jesus. I mean, they're like actually vocal about it. They're, they're very, they want you to know that they are right with God. While other people let their works do the talking, these people talk. <laughs> A lot of times they'll focus on how intensely personal their relationship is with Jesus. And the reason why they do that is because it doesn't align with the normal expressions of faithfulness. Like you would expect normal Christians to love God's people and to love the Word and to spend time with God's people. And, and normally a false Christian doesn't do those like really obvious things. And so in defense, they'll say, well, I have a uniquely personal relationship with Jesus Christ. To quote George Jones, me and Jesus have our own thing going. That's the way they explain it. Or they'll even make statements like this. You know... I get these committed guys and, you know, these people who want to join the church and those people who want to be here all the time, but Jesus never demanded fanaticism. That's okay for some people, but 
I mean, I don't want to be fanatical about my relationship with the Lord. Yet no matter how much somebody would try to justify their relationship with the Lord, I think deep down inside, they can never escape the possibility that they may be wrong. As scary as this may seem, whether it be for you or for someone in your own family, there's hope. Because in my conversations with those in this position, it is not uncommon that the false professor experiences some warning signs. And here are some of the warning signs that are calling them back. One, they have an aversion for eternity. You know what I mean by that? They don't like to think about death, and they don't like to think about eternity because they want to think about the here and now because that's what's good to them. That's an indication that God may still be working on your heart. If you have this morbid fear of the eternal if if you just don't want to think about eternity that's a sign that you may not be a true christian because true christians they love to think about eternity they love the idea of being with jesus forever another sign is the emptiness associated with their material accomplishments The false professor is striving to find some type of significance in this world, whether it's popularity or stuff. And they just can't shake the void. They just feel like something's not right in their life. I'm telling you, this is God working in their heart to help them understand that, you know what, the stuff will never satisfy you. And there's one more thing. It's a nagging guilt over a life lived for self. Whereas a true Christian can lay his or her head down at night with the peace that Jesus has done it all, and they know that they are committed to Christ. There are moments, even like this morning, where someone thinks and wonders, am I really, really a Christian? I I don't know if I'm living for Jesus. I, I think I'm just living for myself. If you if that's you, or you know anyone like that. I think the text in Mark 3, 7 through 36 is going to be especially helpful. Because Mark 3 tells us what a right relationship with Jesus actually looks like and how it would impact one's life. See, we're going to read the text in just a moment. But let me give you some background to help you understand why I'm even saying this. In this opening section of Mark, we've been looking squarely at Jesus, the divine Messiah, right? He said that from the very beginning, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And particularly, we make our way to look at his authority, and we saw his authority over darkness and demons and disease, and then we see his authority over the religious establishment. And so we have identity, who Jesus is, we have authority, and then Mark begins to focus in chapter 3, verse 7, all the way down to chapter 4, verse 41, two response. So notice this, you're going to see the cycle throughout Mark. The identity of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the response of the people. The identity of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the response of the people. And now we've moved into this section of response. We know who Jesus is, we know what kind of authority he has, and what's the right way to respond to him? If he is who he says he is, and he has the authority that he claims to have, what does it look like to submit to that authority? And here, instead of giving us like 
a detailed table of contents with like lists and charts of what a right response look like, looks like. Mark gives us some stories. They're so much more vivid. And these stories in particular work well for us because when we read the story carefully, we'll see the appropriate response to Jesus stands in clear contrast to the popular response to Jesus. In clear contrast, I mean... For those of you who are scared, there there is no nuance here. It will stand out and it will be extremely obvious to you who really follows Jesus and who's not following Jesus. And the story captures that perfectly. The text actually discloses four different responses to Jesus. Only one of which is appropriate. And because of our limitations in time, today we'll only focus on the first two. We'll take the next two next week. So we're looking at various responses to Jesus, which one's the right one. And as we work our way through these responses, here's all I would ask you to do. Ask yourself, honestly, with which one you most identify. We see the first response in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them to not make him known. What's this first response? It's simply self-interest. What we see here in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, is the self-interest of the crowds. The self-interest of the crowds. And what's interesting is the way that Mark distinguishes between the expansive, multifaceted, self-interested crowd and the true followers of Jesus that will show up in verses 13 through 21. I mean, it is very clear when you read the text clearly. Many of us would read this on the surface and think, oh, this is awesome. Jesus' popularity is just through the roof. But Mark is careful to distinguish between Jesus' popularity and again, an appropriate response to Him. The crowd in the book of Mark is one of the characters, if you will. You have Jesus... You have the disciples, and you have the crowd. I mean, it's the, the word is the crowd. You'll see it show up over and over again. And if you've paid careful attention so far, you're going to notice something. That the crowd has not been a friend to Jesus. They've been appreciative of Him. They've been desirous of Him. But they have not been friendly to His mission. Do you remember what the mission of Jesus was stated in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15? It was this. He wanted to communicate the reality of the kingdom, right? And he wanted to command a response to the king. Mark 1, 14-15 sets up the entire book saying this is Jesus, this is what he came to do. He wanted to communicate the reality of the kingdom, he wanted to command a response to the king. This is the initial phase of his ministry. He wanted to meet spiritual needs primarily through teaching. And we see as we make our way through Mark chapter 1, that Jesus begins to initiate that mission. What does he do? He immediately calls some disciples to himself. And then he begins teaching in the synagogue. And what happens? Do you remember? 
As soon as he begins to teach, some demon begins to object to this teaching. Jesus casts out the demon, and then all the people note that, wow, this guy has authority. He can do some, his teaching is authoritative, and he can do even more than just teach. And then they find out that he can heal. And then it says that he gets trapped in the house that he was staying in because people were coming to him all night long because they wanted healing and they wanted the demons to be exercised. So much so that when we read through Mark 1, we see that Jesus has to sneak away to go pray. And his disciples come to him early in the morning while he's praying and they say, hey, look, the crowd, go back to the crowd. And he said, no, my mission is to teach. Look with me over at Mark chapter 1 to see this for yourself, because you have to note this. Mark 1, verses 38 and 39, and he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there, for that is why I came out. So Jesus wanted to preach, and the crowd just wanted healing. And as we make our way through the text, just keep, continue to look with me. Jesus is out, he's trying to escape the crowd, and then a leper comes to him. And he tells the leper just to go to the priest. And what does the leper do? Verse 45. He goes out and talks freely about it. And it says that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was in the desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So in chapter 2, we see that Jesus has to wait for the crowd to die down, so that he can go back to Capernaum and preach. They are impeding him from his mission. And he was always gracious. He always healed. He always met their needs. Yet he had a priority. And he wanted to do two things. He wanted to communicate the reality of the kingdom. And he was going to command a response to the king. But these people were clamoring to meet or to have their needs met. The religious leaders begin to get involved, and we see that they distract Jesus from his mission. And while he says that he came to teach, he wanted to teach, he wanted to meet spiritual needs, we don't see any mention of Jesus' teaching from chapter 2, verse 18, all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. Notice even in this response, in chapter 2, verse 7 to verse 12, where we were just looking, it says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples out to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Jerusalem and Edomia. And what was he doing? It says they heard what he was doing. That's why they came to him. Notice that. They heard what he was doing. They didn't hear what he was teaching. They wanted to get in on what he was doing. And here's what Mark does that I want to show you so carefully this morning, because this will help you understand the rest of the book. There is a difference between the disciples and the crowd. And you see it clearly here in this text. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. Notice that. The disciples and the crowd are not the same thing. Look at verse 9. You'll see something similar. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the what? The crowd. Disciples and the crowd aren't the same thing. In 1 verses 13 through 19, we have this description of his disciples. And then look at verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Do you notice? The crowd is not the same as his disciples. It's pretty clear. And what is this crowd? If they're not disciples, what are they up to? 
Well, notice the identity of the crowd. It, it keeps calling them in verses 7 and 8 a great crowd, a great crowd. Uh, this word was often used to describe a mob of some type. Some historians have done some estimations, and they think this crowd consisted of thousands of people. Thousands of people clamoring for Jesus' attention. And even notice not only the breadth of the crowd, but notice the diversity of the crowd. Jesus, I mean, Mark is careful to note that these people are from all over the place. They're from Galilee, that's the northern part of Palestine. They're from Judea, that's the southern part of Palestine. And then it mentions Jerusalem, particularly. That was the royal city, the religious capital of the world. This is where the pure Jews lived. And then Edomia, that was even farther south, and that was actually a mix between people from Edom and people from Jerusalem. So they were, as the Jews would affectionately use the term, half-breeds. And then beyond the Jordan, so that's on the east side of things, if you're looking at your Bible map. And then it says from around Tyre and Sidon, that's the far north side of things. And these people weren't even uh, Jews at all. They were totally Hellenized. They were uh, Phoenicians. And basically what we have here is north, south, and east. There's no uh, west, by the way, because that's the ocean. <laughs> so there's no sea peoples that were coming in. But you've got every possible point. You've got north, south, east, and then you have Jews, mixed groups, and then Gentiles. And it was a diverse crowd, and they were all coming because they heard what he was doing. They didn't want to submit to him. They didn't want to hear his teaching. They wanted to get in on the healing and the miracles. They wanted to be a, have a piece of this action. And notice not only what drew them, but notice their disregard. Their total disregard for Jesus. I really love the way that the ESV translates this in verse 9. It says, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him crush. It's a great word. The word there basically would mean pressing, crushing, pushing forward, uh, mobbing, falling upon Jesus with the unintentional byproduct of causing harm. I mean, this is intense stuff, what's going on. And we see the humanity of Jesus in a very real way. He's fearful for his life, and so he says, get a boat. Get me a boat ready so that these people will not crush me, so they will not trample me. That's, they didn't care about Jesus. They just wanted what he could give them, even to the point that they were willing to trample him so that they could get to some touch of him. And not only are the people wanting the physical miracles, but you even have the demons here again prematurely disclosing his identity. We've talked about that several times, but Jesus wants to disclose his identity as the Son of God after he explains to them that he's actually going to die on a cross. But he has not taught them that yet. And so here are these demons. They're saying that he's the Son of God and that they're acknowledging this. And Jesus is even having to fight the demonic presence and say, look, don't disclose my identity yet. I don't want it coming from you, number one. And two, I don't want you associating the Son of God with just a wonder worker and not a salvation bringer. And so he is clearly facing opposition in this crowd. So what I want you to see is that this isn't something to celebrate. Like, yay, Jesus, he has a crowd around him. This is actually an obstacle to his ministry, what he's trying to do. The people just wanted relief from their mental and emotional problems. And the crowd in Mark is a paradox. It, it, it seems, I mean, it needs and commands Jesus' attention. Jesus is fully attentive to the misery present in his numbers. We see his compassion. But its clamor and its stirring is not a response of faith. Listen, 
Jesus still shows compassion to their immediate needs, but they do not commit to him. The same crowds that are clamoring for him now will be shouting crucify him at the end of Mark. Same word, the crowd. They only want what they want from him. Such is the nature of crowds. The presentation of Jesus here seems representative of the Beatlemania of the early to mid-1960s. For many of us, we're too young to remember that, but if you've ever seen the videos of this, it's nothing short of horrific. <laughs> and it was in 1963 that CBS News actually characterized Beatlemania as an epidemic that had seized Great Britain, and they were afraid that it would infect America, and indeed it did for three years. And one reporter captured the dynamic of these teen girls screaming and shrilling and literally like jumping on top of their car. And he said, you can't realize how they're pushed about talking about the Beatles. They're mobbed and they're questioned. They have no lives to call their own. They're treated like machines, not even like human beings. You know, it was so interesting because this this phase of Beatlemania was actually studied by psychologists for years. They were trying to figure out why anybody would respond this way. The British Journal of Clinical Psychology would later explain Beatlemania as the passing reaction of predominantly young adolescent females to group pressures of such a kind that meet their special emotional needs. They just wanted their needs met and they felt like that their longing for just this emotional contact, that these guys could fulfill that, and it was a total mob mentality. And the point that we have here is that what I want you to see in this is that these pastoral and like folksy stereotypes of Jesus surrounded by lambs and children in a peaceful environment are a skewed caricature of Mark's description of Jesus' early ministry in Galilee. It was a madhouse. I mean, the arrival of a popular leader jostled about by crowds and news reporters is probably a better picture of what Jesus' early ministry was like. Now, you need to get this real picture. You need to understand that Jesus is pressured by selfish people. A crowd for Jesus was not the same as success. Superficiality was not the same as submission and salvation. And, and while this account for Mark reminds us of Jesus' popularity and power, the greatest significance of where it's located in the book of Mark is for us to examine our response. Especially important since the crowd is not the same as the committed. See, what we have here is Mark implicitly warning us to examine our motives in following Jesus. An appreciation for and an affinity for Jesus alone may be a popular response to Him, but it is not an appropriate one. Let me help you with this individually. Think about this by yourself for a second. I want you to understand that an appropriate response to Jesus demands more than just self-interest and superficial improvement. There are churches all around the country that would advertise to you that if you just come to Jesus, He's going to fix everything. The health-wealth types tell you you'll be healthy and wealthy. But then you have some lesser types that would say, well, look, if you want to be physically fit and you want to have a good business, you just need to let Jesus rule your life as opposed to you ruling your life. And everybody's so concerned about superficial needs. Jesus isn't worthy. He's just a great addition to what they already have. And yet the way we see Jesus presented in the book of Mark 
isn't just the one who can meet temporal needs. We see Him as the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who is worthy of our submission, our adoration, the one that we bend our lives to. Look, I want you to know that Jesus can, I, I mean this, Jesus can meet surface needs. You hear the old phrase, um, Jesus could fill that, that God-sized hole in your heart. Look, Jesus can do that. That emptiness that I was talking about earlier, for those who are self-deceived, Jesus can meet that void. I'm not denying that one by. He, he will increase your quality of life. Just look at the countries and the history of civilization that have been impacted by the Christian message and those who have not. Jesus does make a difference on our surface lives. But you must remember, He did and does relieve the most pressing needs, but He also did and does demand repentance and submission. That's the Jesus that's being portrayed in Mark. He's God, not just some type of genie. He's a king, not just our companion. You know, I was thinking last week, I used this term. I said last week that the text reminded us that God is not just some type of cosmic killjoy. I think this week the text reminds us that God is not some type of cosmic candy machine. He's not just somebody that we come and like what we think we really need that He's going to meet. Jesus wants to do so much more. There's something more fundamental. There's something more deep than just what we would want on the surface. The biggest problem that we have is not just our health or our money or our children, but it is our soul. And Jesus came to meet that need. What does this mean for us as a church? I think it helps us understand the difference between the crowds and the committed. Our understanding of this difference will safeguard us against the error and frustration of superficiality and sentimentality. Now, I want to say this. It, it is an easy mistake for churches to fall into, for pastors to fall into, and for people to fall into, to equate crowds with success. You ever been somewhere like that? I have, and I'm saying this kindly. I think... In one of my previous ministries, not anything recent, but one of the first ones I ever worked in, we really had this desire to reach people. And then all of a sudden, every Monday morning, we found ourselves looking back at the service, and we would always look at three things. How many butts were in the seat? How, many, how much offering was giving? And what was the emotional feeling of the service? That was the way we measured success. And you know what? I realize now, the more I study Scripture, that that is not the Christian paradigm for success. We can't base our success off how many people can fit in a building or what things feel like or how big offerings are. I'm glad to say in my conversations with the elders here at Faith Bible Church that they don't measure the success of the crowd through mere uh, population, but through commitment. Now, I've got to say, the, the quantity of Faith Bible Church is important, but it's not as important as the quality of its people. That's why we, what we're looking at for our church and what you should be looking at to see is this a good church or a bad church is do, do we understand the gospel or are people committed to the body or people obeying Jesus in baptism or, or are they serving Christ uh, with their lives and with their businesses and their vocations? This is the difference between a superficial and a sincere submission to Jesus. And for the sake of time, I would only point you now to this next response that we see in verses 13 through 21. And that is the submission of the disciples. We have the superficiality of the crowds contrasted with the submission of the disciples in verses 13 through 19. 
And we'll read this and we'll be done. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. What do we see here? We see something very unique and something very universal. Let me go ahead and tell you, something very unique. You're not all apostles, and I'm not an apostle. <laughs> These men were very special. They do something very special for Christ. But what we see in verse 13 is universal. Look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Then out of that group, verse 14, and he appointed twelve from among those that he called. This text just clearly reminds us that Jesus is the one that takes initiative to call people to himself. That's what a disciple is. Someone who has responded to Jesus' call to come to himself. Someone who has aligned themselves with Jesus' purposes. They have left their old lives behind and they have come to him. Every account we have seen of a calling of a disciple so far in the book of Mark, whether it be 1, Mark 1, 15 through 20, or even with the story of Levi, Jesus always took the initiative, and what happens? There was this radical response where people leave what they're doing, and they go and they follow Jesus. That is a disciple. It is not just superficial interest, but it is submission. It is commitment. That's the difference between the two. Now, will these men have their needs taken care of, both in time and eternity? Absolutely, even though I have to tell you that their lives were ultra hard and difficult. But Jesus took care of them. Ultimately, they're with Him now. Because they wanted to be here with Him in time, they would also be with Him in eternity. And I would say that the same is true of us. Jesus calls. How do we know who is really called? Because they're the ones that respond. They're the ones who do want to be with Jesus now in time, and therefore they will be with Jesus in eternity. And it doesn't matter what they leave behind. They think that He is worthy. He is greater. He is better. That's all I would say to you today. For those of you who may be here and deceived, we'll finish it this way. Indeed, hell is horrible. Heaven is wonderful. And God does intend for you to have a wonderful life in His plan. But can I appeal to you this morning to respond to Christ from a different angle? Can I offer a, a different reason for you to submit to Him? Here it is. He's worthy. He's greater. He's better. I mean, what else would you possibly live for? So what if, if you have physical health here and now? So what if you make money? So what if you advance in your career? Those aren't things to live for. I hope they happen for you. But that's not like what you should be striving for with all your life. That is not the purpose of your life. See, 
your purpose should be just to align yourself with the rule of Jesus because Mark has already shown us that under the rule of Christ, evil will be eliminated, disease will be decimated, grace transcends guilt, pardon, penalty, righteousness, wrath. I mean, the cross shows us. The resurrection shows us. The ascension of Christ shows us that Christ rules in the hearts of His people. He will soon rule over all, and that's worth living for. That's the difference between the crowd and the committed. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, I would just say this. Rejoice in the amazing reality that Jesus has chosen you to be one of His own. He's the one that took the initiative. That's what we sang earlier. Grace unmeasured, bound and free. It is, it is for us. Following Him is not a burden, but a blessing. I'm so tired of hearing people present following Christ as just this morbid event and affair. This is a wonderful thing. His rule is great. We rejoice in that. And I would say one more thing to those of you who are believers and you're concerned about someone else. Don't shortchange your unsaved friends by calling them to anything short of commitment to Jesus. Don't, don't be tempted to say, all right, I know that if I call him to submit to Jesus, he's probably not going to respond, but if I tell him that Jesus can make his life better, he will respond. That you are shortchanging the gospel. It is about so much more than just eternity. It is about right now. Inviting them to submit themselves to Jesus is the only appropriate response to him. What else would you invite them to? How else could they respond? Do you want a crowd? Or do you want disciples? You want true followers. So what we have here today is superficiality versus submission. The crowd versus the committed. Where are you at today? Let's pray. Father, the text has made it clear uh, that there is only one appropriate response to you, and that is to submit to you, and that is a joy. For if there are any who are here this morning that have not done that, I pray that they would. I pray that even in our small groups tonight that these types of conversations would come up and that we would really be able to analyze our response to Jesus. Indeed, you have called us. That is what matters. And yet the evidence that we have really been called, that we have truly responded, is through our commitment to you. And I pray that that would be or the life expression of Faith Bible Church and everyone who is sitting under the sound of my voice this morning. I pray that they would submit to you and find joy in you. They would be committed to you, not just a part of the crowd. Pray your spirit would make that clear. Thank you for our time together today as a church body. Bless us now as we dismiss and go our separate ways. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.